I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set an example for the believers in speech and conduct in love and faith and impurity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. This was written to a pastor, to a spiritual leader, a young guy, obviously, leading a very big church who's incredibly gifted. It says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Pray, come Holy Spirit. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, the most beautiful people that we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people don't just happen. Beautiful people don't just happen. Unless you are successfully, and I do mean successfully, burying your head in the sand on this one, you are aware that we are sort of in the age and era of the celebrity pastor. And we are experiencing like a steady stream of fall after fall after fall. Name your tragedy of choice. Driscoll, Lentz, Ravi Zacharias. Seems like every few months about I don't know. Another one just seems to like bite the dust. And we look around, I think sometimes at people like that in those sorts of positions. I've obviously had like, had to have some serious heart to hearts with myself (laughs) and go, all right, if they can't make it, how can I? They're supposed to be these spiritual leaders. We want to be people who end well, who, um, can go the distance. It's that long obedience in the same direction. I don't know anybody who would be really excited about a moral failure or burnout or just sort of sputtering out into despondency. And uh, Robert Clinton has this leadership book that I had so many people over the years tell me to read. You've got to read this book. You've got, it's incredible. It's incredible. I've still only read the Cliff Notes, so I'm getting there. <laughs> But he outlines in the making of a leader, he identifies a stage theory that's really specific to leaders in the Christian world. So bear with me if you don't feel like that applies to you. 
There's six stages by which God develops a pastor or a leader over their lifetime. Sovereign foundations, inner life growth, ministry maturing, life maturing, and then a convergence of what he calls afterglow, which is awesome, by the way, right? Anybody want to get to afterglow? I don't know what that is, but it sounds great, right? It's like, basically, this is when you are, uh, your ministry is no longer your teaching or your leadership or your strategy. It's not like what you're doing anymore. It's just who you are. Anyone been in the presence of an old codger, an old female or male saint, and you're just like next to them, and you're like, why does it feel like you're humming with like love and joy and wisdom? Like I can hear it, right? You just tend to like, can I sit at your feet? Like literally, like you just something in them. I'm so sorry if you've never had that experience. I know a lot of people haven't. To have somebody who has finished well and who carries a sort of weight with them. Someone uh, who is like, you're seeing the effects, the aftergrow of a well-lived life in service to Jesus and his bride. Clinton writes that most leaders never mature beyond stage three. Most pastors plateau at that point of sort of like maturing in their ministry gifts. He argues only about 30% end well. This is not good, especially because of the maxim that as the leaders go, so go the church. As the leaders go, so go your home church. As mom and dad go, so goes your family. And let's not rule out just the simple reality of self-leadership. The tragic truth is that if the ending is bad, nobody remembers the beginning. No matter how much good you do in your life, it is so often eclipsed if you don't end well. Again, name your scandal of choice. Most of those people had years, if not decades, of really good work. They've did a lot of beautiful things. Some of the folks who have had a fall recently, I had like the opportunity of being in their orbit, like a little closer to their ring, and I got to see just how beautiful and good some of their impact was, and it's heartbreaking to see it all just washed away because of what happened at the end. So the question before you and me and all of us, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, is how do we become part of that 30%? Because we all start with a desire to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Any all like not into that line? Anybody? Like well done, good, the God of the universe apparently is gonna say that to you or not. But aspiration alone, wanting that is not enough to go to the, go the distance. So how do we actually travel the long road and not fall off along the way? I know most of us here are fairly young. Shout out to all those that are not. So good to see you. We joke in our church, by the way, if you're new, that if you come through the door, oftentimes in churches, when like somebody comes in and they're like 20s or 30s, like the pastors and leaders and teams like just swarm them like, oh my gosh, would you please stay? We have the opposite effect. We're like, oh, 22 year old, yeah, cool. See. But man, if you're like over the age of like 50, 55, you're like, oh, please stay. I know we look so young, but please stay. <laughs> Anyway, I know a lot of you are young and you're not thinking about 70 or 80. 
But let me offer this to you with no pressure. You need to be. And that's my talk today. You need to be. You need to be thinking about life at 80, maybe even 90. We have to be, begin rehearsing to ourselves that you're not your job and you're not your status and you're not your gift, whatever that is. And that no part of your status or job or gift will last forever. All of it will be taken away. All of it. If not by tragedy or by failure or by accusation, it will be taken away because you will die. Someday you will be really old. We're all tracking. <laughs> like just say it to yourself. Like I'm going to be really old one day. So this morning, I simply want to remind you that you have a soul. As we begin to step into two weeks of prayer and fasting and worship together, as new folks are like stepping into regular rhythms of joining the church, I want to remind us before we get started about mission and contending for the like, what God's going to do in the world, like you have a soul. And that's, that responsibility you have is to tend to it and keep with Jesus. Like you, you um, if, if you tend <laughs> and if you keep it, Jesus, like, like if you tend to your union with God, it will last into it in eternity with this relationship. I'm sure many of you know the old business maxim, start with the end in mind. Any of you heard this? Start with the end in mind. Start with a vision of your life 40 or 50 years from now and then reverse engineer and figure out how to live now in order to make it that, to that future reality. St. Benedict from his sixth century rule of life says this, keep your death always before your eyes. Keep your death always before your eyes. I know I'm really cheering you up this morning. I'm going to keep going like this, so just get ready. <laughs> um, I've spoken many times about the death apps. I'm like, just love. I finally found new ones over the years. Like the most recent one, I think I mentioned recently in a sermon, I get a notification on my phone um, like four or five times a day that says, Andrew, comma, you're going to die. Um, this is the newest addition to my cadre of death devices or whatever, reminders. This is a skull. It's like, what kind of church did I walk into? And so my new discipline, and I, I learned this from like just reading a bit about the ancient um, prayer rooms that Benedictine monks would have, is that you write your sermons before, they would write their sermons or their messages, they would do their prayers and their devotions before the skull. Keep death always before your eyes. In ancient monasticism, in a cell, the monk would have a prayer bench, and on it there'd be three things. Parchment, like a section of scripture, a candle for light, and a skull. And by the way, the skull wouldn't be like some like nice stone thing from Etsy. It was like Brother Jarius who died six months ago. <laughs> straight, straight up. Like they would hold the skull there and they would rehearse this reminder to keep death ever before them, to remember that every single day, don't waste your life on things that don't matter because you're going to die. Don't waste it. 
In some Christian orders, you would actually dig your own grave next to like the building that you would eat and you would walk by your grave every day and you'd have this little prayer, I'm gonna be there one day. It's like, gosh, these monks are morbid. But one thing that marks out so many of these sacred orders actually is joy and rest and attentiveness to that which matters most. There's this ancient inscription over the ossuary where Christians were buried in the Mediterranean. It says this, hear this. Where you are, we once were. Where we are, you soon will be. (laughs) How good is that? Where, Where you are, we once were. It's like a little like shout out from the grave, like a bad thriller video. And where we are, you soon will be. It's like a nursery rhyme that's dark. Again, now all of this is, none of this is meant to be depressing. It's meant to help us live with a high awareness of the precious gift of the time that God's given us. It's meant to remind us that life is fleeting. I remember Eugene Peterson saying, one of the primary jobs of a pastor is to prepare people to die. So here I am. Look, (laughs) we, we will not, like, we will not care. You will not care about how great your Instagram account was or what mean people said about your actions this week or who voted for who or how big a deal you were in your job. You will care at the end of your life. We know this just statistically about so many other things. Can you imagine what they are? We've talked about this, right? These are what David Brooks calls eulogy values. You're going to be thinking as you near the end, your marriage, your children, your friendships, your integrity. Did you waste your life is the number one thing that comes up again and again in people that are near the end. Did you act on what God put in you? Do you have a life with God? Are you ready to face the Lord Almighty? You will care about who you've become. You will just ask different questions. Recently, I've had this growing desire to befriend older people, like much older people. I've been spending a lot more time with my dad because when you're with older people, they're asking different questions. When you're young, you're asking questions about how to live. When you're older, you're asking questions like, how do I die well? My dad has this phrase, right? He's a big football family. He's like, all right, I'm in the fourth quarter. Right, the clock determines the play. How am I, how am I, what, what are the plays that I'm calling in this last quarter? There's an attentiveness to that. And as I see him asking these questions, I'm like, I don't need to wait till the fourth quarter to ask all of these questions. There are questions about legacy and about focus and what matters most. The main thing that God gets out of your life and arguably the main thing that you get out of your life is the person that you become through following Jesus. That will last into eternity. Catherine Doherty in her book on um, Eastern Christian thought, she says, there is only one sadness. There's only one sadness. It's the sadness of not being a saint. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. Like, to be clear, a saint is a soul of uncommon goodness. Each human soul has deep within it a flame of desire for goodness and for beauty, for sainthood. I really believe that most of us actually want to get in touch with our um, latent desire for sainthood. 
to be a soul of uncommon goodness. That it is said about you when people leave, when you leave the room, people say about you, there is something about them. There is a grace and a love and a tenderness and an openness and attentiveness. This is not about intelligence. This is about attentiveness to God and to people. And I want to just say, Sanctuary Church, this right here is the need of the hour. It's the foundation as we talk about praying, God, will you do again in this city what you did 200 years ago? God, will you do again in restoring people and seeing justice and mercy and goodness flow through our streets? To see, Lord, you like solve the mental health crisis. Would you use us to be an outpost of your love in a city where there is so much confusion? All these big prayers, they begin with this ache of, God, we want you here. And that, God, we want you here has to begin, God, we want you here. And so the call, I find myself doing like a version of the sermon every Labor Day. I don't know why. It's like the, just before we're about to step into the new year, it's like, hey, everybody pay attention to your soul. How are you doing? The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but a greater number of holy people. And I stand before you as someone who's having a hard time getting there. God cares about your gifts. And man, we want to see you use your gifts. He cares about your intelligence. God is looking for holy people. Do you have a passion in your life to become a good man or a good woman who serves Jesus and his bride? Are we becoming people of moral goodness? Are we becoming people of love? We know that our world has basically traded saints for celebrities in terms of what we want out of life. We don't want saints, we want celebrities. We crave fame over quiet, holy lives, over non-Instagrammable sacrificial love. Anybody? Right? I know you don't want to amen that because it's like, in, like it'll indict you, but like, do you feel that? In the Catholic and Orthodox Church, there are these things called saint days. There's like so many of them. These days are meant to raise the horizon of possibility for the growth and expansion of a soul. It's like, look what they did. Look what they did. We got another feast coming around the corner tomorrow. We're going to eat big and we're going to celebrate and we're going to read a story about Saint fill in the blank. And oftentimes these saints are, not, are like non-heroic acts of beauty and worship. You think, oh, yeah, the saints are the ones who are like, you know, the Mother Teresas of the world. Like, read Mother Teresa's story. There's nothing Instagrammable about that story. It's a hard path of quiet service to the least of these, to the most hurting. It was an openness to God where they were and a desire to walk in union with him. Think of Paul's often repeated line in the Bible. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's not be perfect as I'm perfect. It's follow Jesus the way that I follow Jesus. Take on a lifestyle of discipleship that I model for you and you will grow and mature into Christ. Can people say that about you? It's not an indicting, shame-filled thing that should somehow spiral you in despair. For all those that need like a hug when I say something like that or you feel exhausted. But this is the call. 
that you would look around and you look over and like, Kevin, man, I want to follow Jesus like you follow Jesus. Even with all your mistakes and all your hiccups and all the things you're jacking up right now, all the way that you like, the way that you ask for forgiveness, the way that you are seeking to grow in, in the path of Jesus. You constantly have this, can other people say that about me? Imitate me. Am I, is there a passion for me to move deeper and deeper into union with God? Take on a lifestyle of discipleship that I model for you. Ruth Haley Barton wrote this, the best gift you can give the people you lead is your transforming self. And I love this. It's not transformed, but transforming. A buddy of mine told me this story last year about um, uh, they're sitting around with a bunch of church planters. Sorry, it's a little inside baseball. Church planters are not gardeners who work at a church. Um, church planters are people who start churches. And... Um, I really don't say that condescendingly. I use this language of people like church planter. I told somebody year two that I was here in the city or a church planter. And they're like, cool. Is that like a landscape architect degree? Like, what did you? It's not, anyway. So he's sitting around with these people who are about to like go on the charge. And I just imagine this guy walking around the fire. And I just imagine him being this like deep voice, burly, intense boomer or something. And he's going planter to planter. And he's going, do you know the greatest threat to your church? Do you know the greatest threat to your church that you're about to start? Do you know that? And he just goes around. Do you know? It's not Satan. No way. It's not Satan. What does he say? I wrote this down. Not secularism. It's not postmodern gender theory. You. (laughs) He just looks at these church planters, these men and women around this fire and goes, you are the greatest threat to your ministry. I think of the story of John uh, Bevere when he went to interview Jimmy Baker, who is the celebrity pastor who committed financial fraud, amongst these other things. He's in prison. And he asked Jimmy, right? His whole life fell apart. He was like one of the first fallen celebrity pastors, forerunner. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he asked him, when did you, st- Jimmy, when did you stop loving Jesus? Pretty normal question. You just jacked up your whole ministry in life and you're in jail because you've committed financial fraud. When did you stop loving Jesus? What happens? Jimmy goes, I never stopped loving Jesus. Never. I stopped fearing God. Some of y'all need to hear that verse. Don't keep on sinning so grace will increase. You're sitting here waiting for the cross moment and the communion moment. Yeah, but it doesn't matter what we do. We're saved by grace. Dude, it matters what you do. That is one of the most abiblical things I've ever heard. Man, God loves you. You don't have to earn his love. No. But he is inviting you to life with God, to life with him. I love St. John Christison. He gives a list of risks for the follower of Jesus. Risks of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You ready for this list? You think you're cheered up now. Here's the list. Here's the risks to leading to being a person of saintly consequence. He goes this, he writes, they are wrath. It's easy, don't get super mad. Despondency, envy, strife, slanders, accusations, falsehood, hypocrisy, intrigues against, anger against those who have done no harm, pleasure, at the indecorous acts of fellow ministers, sorrow at their prosperity. It's like, don't love when people fail. These are risks, pitfalls. 
love of praise. Don't love getting praised. Desire of honor, which indeed most of all drives the human soul headlong into perdition. <laughs> it's so epic. Doctrines divide, please. Servile flatteries, like don't get, these are risks you getting flattered. Ignoble fawning, it's a great name for a band. Contempt of the poor, paying court to the rich. When God brings people into your life, are you pivoting to those that you can get something from? Pay attention. These are the risks. Favors attended with danger, both to those who offer and those who accept them. Sordid fear suited only to the basest of slaves. Abolition of plain speaking. Are you clear with, your, with what you say? Is there integrity there? A great affection of humility, but banishment of truth. This, that's like false humility. The suppression of convictions and reproofs. Or rather, the excessive use of them against the poor. While against who are invested with power, no one dare open his lips. It behooves them then to be on watch on all sides. Be on watch. I share a quote like that, not because it's like all-inclusive. There's all sorts of risks. But the point is, is be on watch. Be on watch against the things that will rob you of life with God. This is what Paul is getting at here in the scriptures. Because look, following Jesus, hear this, will either burn you out or burn you clean. A line from my friend John Mark. You will, it will either burn you out or burn you clean. Following Jesus, remember the line we started with, beautiful people won't just happen. How you respond to the pain and brokenness and temptation and distraction of this age is everything. There's so much pain and so many risks and so many temptations and so many distractions that we have to be on guard. And we have to remember that the Lord can meet us in those places and restore us. It was Nietzsche who said, didn't see that coming, did you? He said, he who has a why, somebody who has a why can bear almost any how. And remember, he gave this rant against atheistic Darwinian like worldview, basically saying the world no longer has a why. So in our world, right, like the dominant narrative in Providence Round, there is no God, modern day secularism, in a world where there's no eternity. The point is not becoming a person of love through union of God. It's about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. So we don't take watch. We're not aware of the pain and brokenness entering into our life and we don't allow God to deal with it because we're simply, the temptation is to maximize pleasure and simply minimize pain. And in that worldview, you have no why. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we have this rich why behind our pain and behind our suffering and behind the risks that come at us. You tracking with me? We have a why. If the point of life is to feel good as often as possible, quit the way of Jesus right now. Quit it. It's not for you. But if the reason that you exist is to become a person of love through union with God, if God's main agenda in the world right now is forming a new humanity into people of love and wisdom and Christ-like character who are gonna like co-rule with Jesus forever, 
If that is what God is doing right now, then the pain and suffering and brokenness and even temptations that are built into life are actually a gift in disguise. They are a gift in disguise. Following Jesus can burn us out or it can burn us clean. It can exhaust us as we try somehow to just fit pleasure into our life or we can allow the aches and pains, whether we cause them or they're coming in from outside, to burn us clean. So let's look at the scripture. (laughs) Paul calls us in verse 16 that we read, to watch your life, there's that watch your life and doctrine closely. The word watch here is epeko. In Greek, it literally means to pay careful attention. But it also has this idea of staying fixed on something. It's translated in the New Testament as stay or hold fast. Launita says, to be in a continuous state of readiness, to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately, to pay attention to and to keep on the lookout to be alert for and to be on one's guard against. It's a call to be watchful. It's a call to think about what you think about. In ancient Christian thought, it was understood that the mind's job, hear this, was to like scan for evil thoughts, for lies, and block them from entering into the temple of your body. One writer says, stand at the door of your heart and watch carefully everything that enters or goes from here binging Netflix. This sounds like Proverbs. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. One writer says, be the doorkeeper of your heart and do not let any thought come in without questioning it. Question each thought individually. Are you on our side or the side of our foes? Thought. (laughs) And if it's one of ours, it will fill you with tranquility. And if you have struggled with porn, you know this. You know this well. What it does to your mind, we even know psychologically now, we know what's happening in your brain chemistry. It's like these ancient Christian writers were on to something. You begin to let these things in and it will jack you up. One of the anonymous desert fathers used this analogy. Stay with me. An old man said to a brother, the devil is the enemy and you yourself are the house. The enemy never stops throwing all that he finds into your house, pouring all sorts of impurities over it. It is your part not to neglect throwing them outside again. If you do not do this, the house will be filled with all sorts of impurities and you will no longer be able to get inside. But all the other begins to throw in, you should throw out again, little by little, and by the grace of Christ, your house will remain pure. It's like your life, your mind, and your body is a house for God or a temple. And the enemy is constantly throwing mud in, and we have to constantly shovel it back out. We have to stand at the door and watch and guard. Or as Paul says here, watch your life and your doctrine closely. He goes on from here, persevere in them. Again, long obedience in the same direction, patient endurance. It's an invitation to keep going. Paul's saying, guys, sanctuary, persevere, keep going. 
keep flinging the mud out. And then it says, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I'm going to end and park here on this line. Because for Paul, there is no doubt that salvation is clearly not a one-time event in the past. You would not hear Paul ask a question like, hey, when, do you, when did you get saved? You would not hear Paul ask that. You know how I know? Paul never asks that or emphasizes it. Paul and the church father's salvation, yes, there is always a moment of crossing the threshold, but it is an ongoing process that begins at baptism and doesn't end until death. My point is that salvation was not just a transaction, but it was transformation. It was not just a moment of pardon, but it was the beginning of a life deepening in union with God. It was not just a change in legal status. It was a healing of your soul. Ignatius of Antioch, who was likely discipled by John, says this, we have also, as a physician, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten son and word before time began, but who afterwards became also man of Mary the virgin. He was in a mortal body becoming life. He became subject to our corruption that he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them and might restore them to health when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lusts. He and so many others called Jesus the doctor of the soul and they understood salvation to be a kind of healing and formation of the soul into a person of love so a few thoughts i think paul gives us here that we can extrapolate on then how do we do this first would be a simple concept of having a plan or having a rule of life train yourself to be godly for physical training is some value, but godliness has value for all things. I was told by Grant Elizabeth that there are some Brown student athletes in the room. Maybe. Are there any Brown student athletes? There are two of you guys. What do you play? Basketball and crew. The first Christians one of the phrases that they would use, they would call themselves literally God's athletes. That was their language. In their mind, they were training, not just to row or to hit a three-pointer, but it was training to become people of love. And what they called a rule of life was their training regimen. Just like you both, I'm sure, have, or are about to have. <laughs> Now, this can sound exhausting to a lot of you, just coming out of a hard season, but a good training regimen is a healthy blend of both work and rest, right? Some of you in athletics know that like, there's this controversy in the world of sports around the load management. And this is, like, this is like one of those things of like acknowledging that some of the best players take their rest as seriously as they do their, their work and their training. This is LeBron James famously sleeping 12 hours a night and still unable to become as good as Michael Jordan. <laughs> a rule of life is about designing a life architecture, a game plan and a pace, a training that involves the work and rest and the pace and path of Jesus. Secondly, 
One, a rule of life. How do we do this? We have a plan. Two, a life of integrity in community. Verse 12 says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young and set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. This is a call to progress, to being the same person in public as you are in private. We have to let people into our heart and we have to let them see us as we actually are in real time. Watch your progress. Watch your progress. A couple years ago, I had to let a friend of mine into my life, like, and to share some things that were pretty ugly. And it's in these moments where you're watching as you're growing or not growing. It's in these moments that we will discover healing as we bring them before the body of Christ. Three is a, called a conversion of life. In verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Conversion of life. This is the idea of committing to lifelong formation, to never stop being saved, to never stop growing and maturing. Progress, in Paul's words, is not made by climbing some kind of ladder of spiritual success. If there's a ladder at all, the ancient Christians talk about it's climbing down. Thomas Keating has that line in The Spiritual Journey. Uh, it, the spiritual journey is not a success story. It's a series of humiliations of the false self to become more and more profound. <laughs> read that again. The spiritual journey is not a success story. It's a series of humiliations of the false self that become more and more profound. Awesome. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. This is Philippians 2. Empty yourself and be filled with God. Follow the path of the cross to death and you'll find resurrection. It's Jesus and John and John 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many. People who love their life, those who love their life will lose it. Those who lose their life will keep it for my sake. Paul Wilkes says a continuing and unsparing assessment and reassessment of oneself and what is important and valuable in life. And he said that he saw conversion as a continuing process, one punctuated with more failures than successes. Orthodox writer Tito Colander just says, how, like, how do you do this? What do you do all day in a monastery as a monk? He, wanted, he, said, he just said this, he goes, we fall. We get up, we fall, we get up, we fall, and we get up again. A rule of life, a rule of life. We have a game plan, patient endurance, and a conversion of life, a commitment to following the path of Jesus. The next five years of your life are really, really important, but don't lose sight of what's most important. Start with the end in mind. Are you going to be able to say of yourself, as I'm outwardly wasting away, like Paul says, I'm inwardly being made new. 
all of us are invited into this life, onto this path, into this joy to follow Jesus over a whole lifetime. And let's just say, for the sake of the moment, it begins now. How do you become a saint? How do you become a person of joy and rest and love and wisdom? How do you become a person who does not compromise all that God's doing in their life? How do you become a person who looks more and more like Jesus? Dallas Willard just says this, by doing the next right thing. By doing the next right thing. As we say yes to Jesus and his grace, as we say yes to you, our King, and thank you for saving me, by grace alone, he then invites us to do the next right thing. And as we fall to get back up, and as we fall to get back up in his power and in his strength, and to follow the scriptures which tell us to have a plan, and to have patient endurance, and to be committed to your maturation. So as we enter two weeks of prayer and fasting, as we enter a time of contending for revival, let's not just contend for the future of the church, but let's contend for our own soul. Because a lot of us, let's be real, have been in survival mode. But you cannot live in survival mode. Amen? You can't live there. It's fine. It happens. It's good. Surviving? Good. God's a big fan. But you can't. <laughs> you can't live there. At some point, we got to get back up. I fall and I get up again and I fall and I get up again. I just want to invite you right now to listen. Get into that posture we started our service with today as we begin to close our time. And I want to invite you just to put your hands out, palms open in front of you if you want. And would you just pray, just put these words on your lips. You can whisper them. You can speak them out boldly. Just pray, come Holy Spirit. I want to just give you a moment to just sit in the silence, to listen to the voice of God and ask your spirit right now, what's the next right thing? I wonder if some of you, there is either a sin or a compromise or an inconsistency that the Spirit is drawing to your mind in this moment. And I just want to invite you in the kindness of God, in this, the joy and love of God, I want to invite you to confess it. Just confess it to God. And maybe in a moment, you'll need to come forward and confess that to a sister or brother climb across the aisle and share. But I want to invite you to confess it. To not leave here with any stated secrets to God because he invites us to awareness of what he already knows. God, what's the next right thing? So I pray as we're about to listen, God, search our heart. See if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Let us listen.
And so, Lord, as we've invited you to come and help renovate our heart this morning, we come to the altar for prayer. We come to take the bread and the cup and experience the great healing that millions of followers of Jesus have found at the table. As we remember your body broken and blood poured out for the healing of our soul, for the forgiveness of sin, for the renewal and renovation of our hearts. We come. Church, as we come, I have three invitations for you. As you were listening, if there's anything that you sense from God that's maybe not just for you, but maybe for the room, uh, Mike is here in the corner. And if there's anything you feel like you need to share, I want to invite you to come and share that with him as we seek to cultivate the prophetic in our space too. The altar is going to stay like this, and there's room in these corners. I know it's not a lot, but maybe you need to take a knee. This is one of those moments of like, all right, it starts now. I'm naming that thing again. I want to take my soul seriously. I'm committing to this. And there's something about coming to the front that marks that time out. Maybe you need to come and confess to a brother or sister. Maybe you can just do it in lines. You know, don't be too loud if you don't want everyone to know your stuff. But we're going to come forward then. The third invitation is to take communion, to take the bread and dip it in the cup. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and experience that refreshing as we sing and worship and close our time. So I invite you in this moment to stand and come, to kneel, whatever it is in response to the word of the Lord today. Come.